In this episode, we will be using BattleBards sound effects. Check them out, battlebards.com. And if you're signing up for a Prime account, be sure to use our code STACK to get a discount. The Deeds of Dieter Darkhand Chapter 1, Beginnings, Part 2 In the previous reading from The Deeds of Dieter Darkhand, we heard about Dieter's first days, from his mysterious appearance on the doorstep of a shrine of Vanuar in Kerbain to his unusual early childhood. We now pick up where we left off, returning to Harold's words as we continue our story. Having shared these scant details of Dieter's arrival, I am glad to report that from this point on, until the time of his departure from Vanuar's shrine, his childhood has a reliable accounting. If nothing else, Headwife Nared was a fastidious chronicler of daily life, as evidenced by page upon page in numerous volumes spanning her headship. If only all involved in threads of future historic import could be so helpful. But alas, how is one to know what will become relevant? And though the days may be long, the years are short, making it easy to push off record-keeping until the details become faint through time and distance. But such lamentations are not helpful, and so I continue. I am most pleased to report that each year of life at the Carbain Shrine of Anuar has its own book of days, 314 of them to date, and these are helpfully kept in a wooden attic room of the shrine, away from the dampness of the stone of the lower floors. It is a room that receives a surprising amount of use, as I noticed in my time there. The current headwife, Darinya, refers to these volumes on an almost daily basis, looking for precedent in making decisions, seeking advice from previous headwives, and generally steeping herself in centuries of tradition. In fact, it is her habit to spend two hours at least each evening there, along with a cup of fragrant rosehip tea made out of dried buds gathered from the shrine's garden. The first hour is spent in recounting the day's events in the current year's book, the second in poring over the collection. I have found that her study serves her well. Headwife Darinya is able to recall obscure information and can generally place even the smallest events with great precision. If she misses the exact year, she is invariably within one or two volumes of their occurrence. It is a marvelous thing to behold, the work of these keepers of old knowledge. My sojourn in Carebane did not exceed a week, but in that time I fell quickly into the rhythm of life within the simple comforts of the shrine. I stayed in some comfortable, if cramped, rooms a short walk away, and each dew-pearled morning I found great joy in walking the paving stones of the manicured garden, past the fragrant blossoms, through that bright red door, and into the pleasing hush of the shrine. I will always associate the flicker of candlelight and scent of beeswax with my time there, and the candle that lights my writing table now is a reminder of those happy days. If life in the service of Anuar today is any indication, it must have been a familiar, if difficult, place for someone like Dieter to grow up. The daily cycle is closely regulated by a jealously maintained schedule of activities. Indeed, entries in several volumes from our time of interest indicate Headwife Nared's accounts of a young and increasingly mobile Dieter sliding out of the shrine on many occasions, particularly during hours of reflection and service. This is consistent with the Dieter I have come to know, he is never one to sit still for long, and in his youth I can only imagine he was even more restless. In one striking account, Dieter seems to have tested the headwife's patience most severely. Here is the account in her own words. Arose early to account for morning delivery all satisfactory except lettuce which was wilted, 
follow up later today. Conducted morning prayers to welcome daylight. Notice D not present, found later in garden, most displeased. And that is underlined twice. He will be confined to room after scrubbing floor. The headwife's anger is evident in the unaccustomed sharp slant of her lettering in that passage. Although Nared's entry is tersely written and starved of detail, another account on the same page offers what we so desperately want to know. It is recorded in the same shaky writing of the one who discovered Dieter on the doorstep during the lighting ceremony. She writes, Dieter was most wicked this morning. He snuck out during prayer and sat in the garden. Not his first time to do so, and I have reprimanded him for it, though without effect. But he went further today, to headwife Nared's great displeasure. He saw a woman pass by, and struck by her beauty, Dieter says, he was compelled to give her something as a sign of his appreciation. With a pocket knife, he cut off every blossom he could reach to form an armful of flowers, the wicked little scamp, and rushed after her with his gift. If I was appalled, headwife was furious, and she has made her mind clear to me in full as Dieter scrubs his way through his chore. At the end of this illuminating passage, there are a couple lines that were scratched through heavily, but the careful study of a long afternoon allowed me to make them out. It reads, I cannot blame him myself. He did not choose this life, and I fear he is meant for something more, and that this will guide his path away from us. But beginnings are the realm of Anuar, and I will help him with his own, if necessary. Immediately after this scratched-out part, Headwife Nared's writing returns to daily life, although in larger letters that finish out the page with an accounting of a new table constructed for the shrine's refectory. Another year or two pass in a succession of deliveries, daily observances, and corrections. The floors seem to have been particularly clean and well-scrubbed during this interval. But then comes an account that has no detail to speak of. Headwife Nared writes about a time that Dieter seems to have left the shrine and even the city and disappeared for several days. D has scared us all, leaving the shrine and city altogether. Has returned safely an answer to my prayer may signal time to apprentice elsewhere. Lectured him never to pass Riven Rock again. The volumes exhaust themselves on the topic of Dieter only a month after this entry, and the last we can find is this, from she of the unnamed shaky hand. Dieter has decided to leave us for his apprenticeship. Not all are saddened, but I shall miss him. I could have hoped for more time with him as he needs some direction in curbing his pride, but the decision is not mine to make. Dear boy. Shortly after making my way through the last of the relevant volumes, I decided I had sufficiently imposed on headwife Dorinya and made ready to depart but the lack of detail in the Riven Rock entry was so intriguing that I had to know more. None at the shrine were able to provide me with more information, so bidding my farewells to the good people in service to the goddess of birth and beginnings, I set off into the city, seeking information in the market. Most had not heard of Riven Rock, and I was ready to return to my rooms in defeat when I felt a tug at my sleeve. An old merchant had overheard my questions and, Contingent on my purchase of a small talisman, shared with me a tale of a large cliff split by water, wind, or wild might that marked one of the easier entrances into the Tolche. At first, that was as much as he was able to provide, but after I brought another talisman, his mind quickly cleared, and he was able to point me in the right direction. After finding a sturdy donkey to rent, I made my way at last out of the busy streets of Carbane, through the gate of the Silver Downs, and into the vast open plains of northern Dunmoriga. 
There passed two days of travel at donkey speed before I came to the foot of the heights of grey stone that rose from the plains, and after a bit of wandering first north and then south, I did at last see the place of which the merchant had told me. There was a great dark fissure some way up, beyond even the sure footing of my donkey. The lateness of the day meant that I had to make camp for the night at the foot. Sleep was long in coming as I wondered what the shadows of that yawning place might hide, but I did awaken with a start as the first light of the next morning painted the sky, so I had to assume that sleep had come upon me eventually. Leaving my donkey securely tethered, I climbed the steep slope and entered the chill dark of the gap. It was exhilarating, and I wondered what a very young Dieter, eight years old from the year of the book of days in which I found the account, must have thought as he came this way all those years ago. I emerged at last in one of the more breathtaking glens I have seen in the Tolcia, and I have seen more than my share. Dingvernal's wild beauty catches me still, and something about the light of that fresh morning, the green gold leaves of the trees fluttering in the breeze, and the faint splash of clear water nearby, all made me feel that this was something special. I made my way down, and after breaking out of the trees found myself looking at a small village. Where Dingvernal's houses are admittedly somewhat ragged and old, this village felt orderly, arranged in a way uncharacteristic of the usual village in this tangled part of the world. I wandered in and found several villagers out and about. They looked at me curiously. Visitors seemed not to have been common here, but none spoke to me beyond distant nods. I made my way onto the central green where a statue stood some distance away, I listened for a moment to the sound of a hammer somewhere out of sight, and the bite of a saw into wood. Overhead some starlings darted by under the brilliant blue sky on some errand of their own. Struck by the curious reception and general lack of greeting, I wandered over to the statue and was shocked to find a familiar face. Although the figure was a boy, the face was that of Dieter. Over one shoulder was a woodsman's axe and his foot rested on what looked like a small wheel. At his other foot, a miniature bull stood, staring defiantly at me. What could it all mean? Inscribed upon the plinth in Atal, the familiar language of my youth, was a brief account of a boy who had wandered into town one day, appearing from the woods I had just come from. The inscription read thus, To the boy from beyond, who came from nowhere to bring hope to a people without it, May his gift forever grace our lives. I was, of course, enchanted by the tantalizing glimpse at some great deed hitherto unknown, and so great was my delight I ran over and accosted the nearest villager. He was taken aback at first, of course, but when he realized I addressed him in Atol, he immediately broke into a smile and led me back to the statue excitedly. He began to speak, relishing the telling of a story long told as is customary among people of the Tolcha. As he did, I found that others began to drift over at the retelling. He said, Once, years ago, we were desperate for food. Our mill had burned down, and with the approach of winter we had no means of turning our wheat into flour for bread. We had appealed to others, our neighbors, tried to arrange for our wheat to be ground elsewhere as we sought millstones and timber, but none were willing to aid us. Starvation loomed, and we felt the coming claws of winter. We had not the tools to form the stones, and our hewing tools had burned in the fire. Then one day a boy came into town. He was young, 
too young to be alone in the woods of our glen, but he showed neither fear nor concern for his situation. He asked in his outer speech, this is how Talchins refer to those outside these highlands, for some food, but we had none to give. We pointed into the blackened ruins of our mill just over there. At this point, the storyteller pointed to where a great white mill stood along the stream. Even at this late day, I could see the scorch marks upon the foundation stones, although the mill has, of course, been fully rebuilt. He went on. The boy sat here on the green for a long while, looking this way and that with careful eyes. It was cold that day, but it seemed not to bother him one bit. After his silence, he stood and walked further down the glen, out of sight. Our people shrugged, wishing him well as he went, but he did not reply. His eyes were focused on the road ahead. Later that day, we heard a strange sound. Coming toward the village, back up the glen was a giant ox, its horns spread wide, and by his side, a large cow. They were laboring side by side, heads bobbing this way and that as though straining. It was not until they came into the village that we saw the reason for their labor. Behind them was the boy, and attached by a straining rope to the cattle were two large millstones roughly made, but able to serve the purpose. They were upright, rolling like wheels, with the rope tied to a sturdy axe handle passed through their centers. We could not speak for wonder, but the boy guided the ox and cow right to the mill's ruins. With an axe, we could chop wood to make more. With millstones, we could eventually mount them for making our own flour and the ox and cow would make milk and more cattle soon enough. We were saved. To this day, we have no idea where any of these life-saving things came from. No neighboring glen ever complained about missing anything, but this boy had seen our need and had done something even our own were not able to. For that, we honor him today. After this touching story, I toured the mill with the entire village in tow. We walked through the rooms full of a mix of golden grain ready for grinding and canvas sacks of a fine white flour that is the pride of the eastern Talche. The millstones are still there and in use. They are now properly dressed after that most desperate time. The axe is no longer used but hangs in a place of honor in that room. The worn handle served well through several years before the people chose to set it aside. And in the pasture just outside the town I saw fat cattle richly fed the descendants of those same cattle Dieter brought to a starving people. With such beginnings, I knew at this moment that I was no longer merely curious. My life must be spent in gathering and sharing the deeds of this great man. And so, having exhausted the sum of all I could gather on Dieter's early life, after a seven-year period of odd invisibility in which I can find absolutely no mention of any exploits reliably attached to his name, I move on to his return to the spotlight. Thank you for joining us for this next chapter, this next part of a chapter in the Deeds of Dieter Darkhand. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's been fun putting this together, exploring a really quite silly character, but doing it in a way that feels different and fun. And at the same time, it's been interesting to see how this is bringing to life a different part of the world, a part of the world that we've not yet explored in our game. I hope you're enjoying it. If you have any thoughts or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can catch us on Twitter and Instagram at Stack O'Dice. Email us at stack.o.dice at gmail.com. 
And always, you can catch us on Discord. Information about that is on our Twitter and Instagram sites. We'd love to hear from you in any way. If you've not yet rated and reviewed us, we'd love to hear from you in that way too, because it's helpful for getting our show out there for more listeners. We'll be getting back to our actual play episodes very soon, and we hope you'll be ready for that. And we'll see you here again next time, right here at Stack of Dice.